Today, our Bible reading will be slightly different to what is in the Growth Group Guide. We will be reading selected verses from 2 Samuel chapter 13. You can follow on the screen. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, 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 was a virgin. Now Amnon had an advisor, an advisor, an advisor, Shemimah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. He took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping as loud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all of this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his, his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Balhazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahad, the king of Geshur, but King David mourned many days for his son.
My name is Adam. I have the privilege to serve as the lead pastor here. And we're going to spend the next few moments looking at God's word, and in particular, this painful story that we've just read. Now, let me set it up this way. I'm I'm sure we've all had the experience where you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden the traffic begins to slow down. Now, at first you're a little bit frustrated, but then you begin to wonder what has happened and eventually you come across a a car crash on the side of the road. Now, this can be an upsetting experience, particularly if it's a, a nasty accident. And it can actually make you change the way that you drive from then on. It it can make you a little bit more cautious and a little bit more careful because you're reminded about the dangers of driving on the road. Well, today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and this passage is a metaphorical car crash of epic proportions. And the writer of 2 Samuel doesn't want us to just speed past. He wants us to slow down to look at this story and to change as a result of it, to learn from it. Now, we're in the, the middle of a, a series through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're looking at the life and the story of King David. And the story of David is, is wonderful and inspiring in many ways. I mean, we've seen this in the first half of the series. But then last week, the wheels began to fall off. David forcibly slept with another man's wife and then had her husband killed to cover it up. Now, in the course of time, David repented, confessed, and he was forgiven his sin by God, but there are still consequences for his sin. And this week, we begin to see the the tragic consequences of David's sin. Now, as Ben mentioned a, a few moments ago, this is an incredibly confronting story. And it contains elements that may be troubling for some of us. It refers to sexual abuse and family and domestic violence. It's incredibly confronting. And for this reason, I want to extend an invitation to you. If at any point in the near future, you have questions or concerns, you have a story or or stories that you feel are important to share, then please feel free to contact us. I know it's not easy to to reach out and to share your experience, but we're here to listen. And it's important that we do talk and that we do share our stories because not only is this an incredibly confronting story, this is an incredibly important story because this is an incredibly prevalent issue. The statistics around sexual abuse and domestic and family violence in Australia are horrific. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, one in six women and one in nine men experience physical or sexual violence from an intimate partner. One in four women and one in six men experience emotional abuse from a partner. And one in five women have been sexually assaulted and or threatened. This is not an issue on the margins of society. This is an issue in the homes and the lives of people we know. This is an issue in the church. This is an experience that some of us have lived. And this is why it is so crucial that we do not put our heads in the sand. This is why it's so crucial that we strive to create a community that is safe. This is why it's crucial that we acknowledge that abuse and violence can never 
be justified. This is why it's crucial that we look, slow down and look at this unpleasant but important story. Now I want to explore this story by asking just two simple questions. Number one, what happens? And then number two, what can we learn from it? So let's first look at what happens here in this chapter. Now let's pick it up in verse one. This is what we read. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now let's pause for a moment and let's work out who is who. Amnon was David's oldest son. Absalom and Tamar were also David's children, but they were born to a different mother. Now we're told in verse 1 that Amnon has fallen in love with his beautiful half-sister, Tamar. But as we'll come to see, this is anything but love. This is illicit and unrestrained lust, and they are not the same thing. As much as our culture wants us to believe that sex is just a bit of fun, that lust is harmless, the truth is, they're not. And we'll see this this morning. Verse 2, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now here we see the evil intent of Amnon. He's lusting after Tamar. He's fantasizing about her. He wants to have her but he cannot and it makes him physically sick. Now his cousin and his friend, Jonadab, notices that Amnon's been tired and sick lately and he asks him about it. And Amnon tells him that he's in love with his half-sister Tamar. And so Jonadab offers Amnon some advice. Now if he was a good friend, Jonadab would have said to Amnon, you cannot pursue this, Amnon. This is outrageous. Please let me help you. Let me pray and ask God to help you. Let me keep you accountable. But Jonadab is not a good friend. He is a selfish manipulator. In fact, we read in verse 3 that Jonadab was a very shrewd man. That he was smart, but he was also deceptive and cunning and manipulative. And he knows who Amnon is. Who's Amnon? He is the next in line for the throne. He's David's oldest son. And so rather than confronting Amnon and warning Amnon, he indulges Amnon. He comes up with a plan to help Amnon get what he wants. Jonadab says to Amnon, pretend to be sicker than you already are. Go to bed and then ask David to send your sister Tamar to come and make some food for you. And this is what happens, verse 8. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Now here, Amnon is lying in his bed, and he has a woman brought to him to indulge his lust. Now does that remind you of anyone? Last week, David was lying in his bed, and he had Bathsheba brought to him to indulge and to satisfy his lust. This is the sins of the father being repeated. Amnon is a chip off the old block, but his sin is worse, as we'll see. Verse 9, then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. 
So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. Now sadly, we can kind of see where this is going because we know the end of the story. It's kind of like that scene in the movie where you want to scream at the the TV, don't do it, don't go in there. And it's not clear if Tamar sensed any danger, but either way, what could she do? There is a power imbalance here, as there often is in situations of abuse. I mean, Amnon is not only her older half-brother, Amnon is David's oldest son and next in line for the throne. What was Tamar to do? So she dutifully obliges her brother's request. Verse 10. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. Now this suggestion from Tamar, it could be an indication that David had a habit of giving his sons whatever they asked for. That he had a habit of indulging his sons. Even though a marriage like this was forbidden in God's law. It could also be a desperate ploy from Tamar to buy her some time. But either way, her pleas fall on deaf ears. Verse 14. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Now this is so horrific on so many levels. And it's so horrific because Amnon takes good things... Good things that have been given to us by God for our good and he twists them and he uses them for evil and selfish purposes. A brother and a sister are supposed to care for each other. But here that relationship is violently distorted. Sex and sexual desire has been given to us by God to unite a man and a woman in marriage. To bind them together in love and security and commitment. And here, that gift is twisted into hatred, rejection, and brutal selfishness. Strength is supposed to be used to protect and defend. And here it is used to assault and to violate. This is demonic and depraved. In fact, the word Tamar uses in verse 13 to describe this act, it's translated as wicked, but it literally means godless. And this describes the actions of Amnon, the heart of Amnon, because look at what we now read, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Amnon discards Tamar, throws her out. Now previously, he, he did everything he could to get near to her, and now he cannot get away from her quickly enough. There is a world of psychological insight in this verse. Now, it's not that Tamar has done anything wrong. She is totally and completely innocent. But she is a reminder of what he's done. She is a reminder of his depravity. And so we cannot bear to look at her. Throws her out. Now, doesn't this story make you angry? This is so wrong. This is so unjust. And if it doesn't make you angry, you're not hearing it properly. This is deeply wrong. 
And what's worse, nothing is done about it. At least not by the person that should have done something about it, King David. Now David gets angry, as any dad would. We read in verse 21, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. David gets mad, he gets angry, that's good, but that's all he does, and that's bad. Amnon should have been punished. Tamar should have been exonerated. But nothing happens. Amnon is not held accountable, and Tamar receives no justice. In fact, Tamar's voice is no longer heard in the story. We read that she lives out her days in Absalom's house, a desolate woman. And this is made worse because not only is David a dad, a dad who should have done the right thing by his daughter, he is also the king. And it was the king's responsibility to make sure that justice was done. But David does nothing. Why? Well, the simple answer is he has been paralyzed by his compromise. I think that as David looked at what Amnon had done, he thought to himself, how can I call Amnon to account when I have violated Bathsheba? He's been paralyzed by his compromise. Now, this doesn't excuse David's inaction, but I think it explains it. And it shows us the devastating consequences of our sin. Now, I'm sure most of you didn't come to church today thinking that you would hear such a sad and a devastating story. You probably came to be, to be lifted up. And I hope and I pray that you will be by the end. But this is in God's word, and God's word is all of it for our good and our instruction. And so we need to slow down and we need to pay attention to this story. Sadly, though, it gets worse. It spirals down to another level because Absalom, Tamar's immediate brother, he hears what has happened. He says to Tamar in verse 20, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be, be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Now, Absalom's word seems a little bit confusing. It seems like he's being dismissive, but he is actually attempting to comfort Tamar. He's saying to Tamar, don't take this thing into your heart because I will take it into my heart. Don't worry, little sister. And this is what happens. Absalom waits for two years. He could be waiting to see if David will do anything. He could also just be waiting for the right moment to exact his plan of revenge. And that's what he does. Absalom throws a big sheep-shearing party now, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds like it would have been kind of fun. He invites all of his brothers along, including Amnon. He waits until Amnon has had lots and lots to drink. He's blind drunk, and then he has his henchmen stab Amnon to death. Now, I'm sure you've had some pretty volatile family dinners. Hopefully, nothing that extreme. But again, here we see the sin of David being repeated in his sons. I mean, Amnon sinned sexually like David did with Bathsheba, and now here Absalom, even though there's a part of us that likes to see you know, someone doing something, Absalom commits murder like David did with Uriah. And the truth is, Absalom was not completely innocent in this either, because Absalom, who do you think was next in line for the throne after Amnon? Absalom was, and we're going to see this play out in the weeks to come. Because again, the consequences of sin are tragic. 
And in the ensuing panic, Absalom flees. He goes on the run for three years and David loses two sons in one night. And so here at the end of this sad and sorry story, we kind of feel like we're in the wake of a tornado. I mean, it's just total ruin, total devastation. God's king is paralyzed by his sin. His daughter has been shattered by the evil of her brother. That brother has been murdered by his other brother, and that brother is now on the run. I mean, it's a family and a kingdom seemingly in ruins. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about God's promise to David to give an eternal kingdom. And now here we are. So the question is, why is this story in the Bible? What can we learn from it? And that's the second question that I'd like to briefly answer this morning. Now, there's lots of things we could take from this story, but the first I'd like to highlight, the first of three lessons I'd like to highlight is this. There are desires we must run from. There are desires we must run from. And this is the lesson we learn from the life of Amnon. Amnon is an example, gives us a picture of sinful sexual desire. Now, our sexual desires are not bad in and of themselves. It's the gifts given to us by God for our good, but they're gifts to be enjoyed within a specific context. The safety, the love, the security of marriage. And when sexual desire is taken outside of that context, it can be dangerous and it can be damaging. This is what we see in Amnon's sexual desire. First of all, his desire is selfish. It's all about what he wants with no regard for Tamar. He treats Tamar like an object for his self-gratification. His, sin, his sexual desire is also deceptive. I mean, Amnon longs for Tamar, obsesses over her, but then he finally gets what he wants and it doesn't satisfy. It leads to the opposite, hatred, rejection. And you see, his desires were also harmful. They caused a, a lifelong pain for Tamar and for his family. And this is the deception and the damage of sinful sexual desire. Now, our culture badly wants us to believe that sex is no big deal, that lust is harmless, that fantasy is to be indulged, and it's just not true. This is why the Bible puts it very plainly to us, and it says, flee sexual immorality. Now, flee is a strong word. If I tell you to flee something, I'm saying run away as fast as you can. There is danger here that you need to escape from. And that's true for sexual temptation. But when I'm saying flee, I'm also saying flee somewhere safe. Flee somewhere where you can get help. And that's why when we flee, we don't just flee in general. We need to flee to Jesus. I mean, when you find yourself in the midst of sexual temptation, flee to Jesus and to his promises. That God wants good for you. That sinful pleasures are not fulfilling, but fleeting. That people, whether in person or on the screen, are not objects, but image bearers of God. That this is not private, but seen by God. That this is not harmless, but can be harmful. That this is not inevitable, but escapable. Flee to Jesus and to his promises. If you find yourself in the aftermath of sexual sin, flee to Jesus and to his promises. The promise that when you repent and when you turn to God, when you own up, when you look up, you can also get up because God is gracious and just and faithful to forgive 
our sins. That's what we read in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This story very starkly teaches us the reality that there are desires we must run from. The second lesson we can learn from this story is that there is a voice we must listen to. And this is the lesson we learn from the life of Tamar. As one commentator says, we must do what Amnon did not do, listen to Tamar. We must ensure that the abused have a voice and that as God's people, we listen to that voice. Now, it's uncomfortable to contemplate Tamar's story. It's painful to look at how she was treated, see how she was used, abused and discarded, dismissed, given no justice. Yet this is the experience of so many people. And I've shared with you already some of the shocking statistics, and for this reason, we don't want to commit the same wrong. We want to listen to the voice of Tamar and those like her. And we want to say to survivors of violence and sexual abuse that what happened to you was not your fault. And it was deeply wrong. And again, I want to extend the invitation to reach out. I know it's not easy, but reach out to a trusted friend or to us. We want to be a church that weeps with those who weep and points to the redeeming love of Christ. You know, one small thing I've done this week is I've signed up to a campaign called 16 Days of Prayer Against Domestic and Family Violence. It begins on the 25th of November. It's being run by an organisation called Common Grace, a movement of Australian Christians devoted to seeking justice, to to listening to to voices like Tamar and and those like her. You might want to join me. You see, friends, as the people of God, we can and we must listen to the voice of Tamar and those like her. Listen to their cries because God hears their cries. Now, how do we know this? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he actually quoted from Isaiah 61 and he said that it was fulfilled in him. Now, this is some of what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Tamar asked the question, where could I get rid of my disgrace? And Jesus says, I have come, and you can get rid of your disgrace in me. It's in him. Now, when Tamar was thrown out by Amnon, her royal robes were ripped and torn. She was shamed by him. But when we come to Jesus, he receives us into his home. He makes us a child of God, and he gives us royal robes that can never be ripped and that can never be torn. He covers our shame. In fact, the end of Isaiah 61 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation 
and arrayed in me in a robe of his righteousness. Jesus covers our shame. He dignifies us and he restores us. And this leads us to the third and final lesson that we can learn from this story. The first is that there are desires we must run from. There is a voice we must listen to. And thirdly and finally, there is a king we must turn to. And this is the lesson we learn from the life of David. You see, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's realistic. It's not a neat book filled with virtuous heroes. It's a messy book filled with broken people because our world is a messy world filled with broken people. But the good news of the Bible is that God is at work in the mess, is that God is redeeming our brokenness. And this story is in the Bible because it's meant to turn our eyes to God. It's meant to turn our hope towards God's true king. I mean, King David was God's chosen king, but he is a letdown. He is sinful and passive and compromised. It leaves us longing for a better king, one that will rule in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness. It's meant to lead us to God's promised king, his eternal king, King Jesus. And you see, God is faithful to the promises that he made to David. And he sends Jesus for you and for me. You know, I heard a story this week about King George, the the sixth king of England. It took place during World War II and London was bombed and the East End was damaged really, really badly. So Winston Churchill and the king, they went to visit this part of town. Now as the king walked through the rubble, he was just dressed in plain clothes and a simple hat. And when he saw the suffering of his people, the, the wreckage of their homes, he wept. He cried. And Winston Churchill says in his memoirs, as the people watched their king weeping amidst their ruins, they said again and again, he loves us. He loves us. Now that's the message of the Bible, isn't it? That God has heard our cry. That God has seen our plight. And he has come down and he has entered into our ruins. And he stands with us and he weeps. He cries, but he doesn't just cry. He dies in our place for our sin and for our evil. He doesn't just pretend that sin hasn't happened, that it doesn't matter. He takes the penalty and the consequence of our sin upon himself. So that people like us, people lost in the mess of our sin, people with sexual sin in our hearts and on our hands, people with violence in our hearts and on our hands, so that we can be forgiven and cleansed so that we can have hope for the future. You know, 2 Samuel 13 is not the end of the story. Praise be to God. Revelation 21 and 22 is the end of the story. And there we see a vision where the mess of sin is dealt with, where everything is put right. There's no more lust, there's no more abuse, there's no more violence, there's no more weeping, there's no more tears, there's no more death. We enjoy an eternity of joy under the good reign and rule of God. So let me just ask you, where is your hope? As you look at the car crash of this story, the car crash of our world, maybe even the car crash of your life, where are you turning to for hope? Is it in yourself, your ability to to clean things up? 
a political party, maybe just in the goodness of human nature. Listen, if that's where your hope is, it will only lead to bitterness and disappointment. Even the best people will disappoint you and the worst people will use you up. Or is your hope in God's good King, King Jesus, the one who has entered into the ruins of our world, wept alongside us and then died for us? He will never leave you. He will never use you up. He has come to give you life forever. Life with God. And so where's your hope? Let's pray and let's turn to this God who has loved us and sent his son for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that though it can be painful and difficult, it is ultimately for our good. And thank you that you have not left us in the mess of our sin and the sin of others that has been done against us. Thank you that you have sent your king and that he clothes us in robes of righteousness, in robes that can never be ripped, that can never be torn, that can never be taken away from us. And because of Jesus, we stand before you this morning, loved, known, accepted. And so Lord, for those of us who are wrestling with sin that has been committed against us, we ask and we pray that you might remove shame and bring healing. Lord, for those of us who are committing sin against others, Lord, would you bring conviction and restoration? And Lord, for those of us who are navigating this difficult situation and and, and the, the sin of others, Lord, give us wisdom and grace to come around each other, to love one another, to support one another to be the people in the church that you're calling us to be. A place of hope, a place of healing, a foretaste of what you will do for us in the future, Lord. And so we just turn ourselves to you now, Jesus. We put all of our hope in you. And we ask and pray that you might have your way in our hearts and in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity to respond now by coming to Lord's Supper. And this is the perfect response to this passage because Lord's Supper shows us what God has done to deal with our sin and our evil. When we come to the table, we remember the words of Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And until Jesus comes again, he calls on us to remember him and to remember his atoning death with the symbols of bread and wine, which represent his body crucified and his blood poured out. So who can come to the table to receive what God offers to us? Well, it's all those who have turned from sin, turned in faith towards Jesus, 
and have a thankful heart for all that he's done. And this is why it's important for us to examine ourselves before we come. We read in God's word in 1 Corinthians 11, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. We need to ask ourselves, am I truly sorry for my sin? Do I truly desire to turn from sin and to obey Jesus? Am I truly trusting in Jesus? Have I placed all my hope, all my faith in him? And am I truly thankful to God for all that he's done for me in Jesus? If that's you, as you think about those questions in your heart and in your mind in these next few moments, then I invite you to come to the table. I invite you to respond to Jesus' invitation when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest.